This year sees a lot of important bicentenaries, and you may already be following Born in 1819 on Twitter. Among those born in 1819 were Queen Victoria, George Eliot, Arthur Hugh Clough, and, if we extend beyond the human, the Menai Suspension Bridge in Anglesey. What is now a Grade 1 listed building began life in 1819, when the construction of Thomas Telford's masterpiece got underway. But this podcast is about a rather different towering figure, though one who bridged such seemingly disparate fields as art history, political economy, botany and social criticism. John Ruskin. The Diseases of Modern Life project, along with its sister project Constructing Scientific Communities, and the 19th Century Centre at the University of Birmingham are hosting a one-day conference at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History on the 8th of February, Ruskin's 200th birthday, called John Ruskin, Science and the Environment. There are details of how to book for this event on our website, and in this podcast we'll consider what Ruskin has to say to interdisciplinary scholars today. So we're stood in the Oxford University Museum of Natural History and I'm with John Holmes, Professor of Victorian Literature and Culture at the University of Birmingham. So first off, why this venue for a conference on Ruskin? Well, this museum was built in the 1850s, opened in 1860, and the process of building it was heavily influenced by Ruskin's ideas and Ruskin was directly involved. So the building was was created to be uh, a physical symbol of a certain attitude to science, a natural theological attitude to science. So it was a temple to God's nature. And the decision was made to build it in a Gothic style, which was in line with Ruskin's aesthetic objectives, partly because Gothic was seen to be a Christian architectural form. So Ruskin was influential on the people who chose to build the building in this form. He was influential on the architects, Benjamin Woodward and Thomas Dean. And above all, I suppose, he got directly involved himself. So Ruskin was uh, involved in during designs for the windows. He was involved in conversations around the murals and around the carving of the capitals. He gave illustrative and pep-talky lectures to the workmen. And in the end, ten years after it opened, when he was appointed as Slade Professor of Art here at Oxford, the first Slade Professor of Art, he taught in the museum. So it's got a strong connection to Ruskin all the way through. Our conference is John Ruskin's Science and the Environment. Do you think that Ruskin is sort of newly on the eco-critical agenda? And if so, why now? Yes, I think Ruskin is being steadily rediscovered yet, say, for an eco-critical purpose. Ruskin was a scathing critic of the impact of industrialization and urbanization on the landscape and on nature. Uh, perhaps his most famous, and in some ways most peculiar intervention on this is a pair of lectures called uh, The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, where he saw changes in meteorology as a result of human activity. Uh, and actually, in the lecture, he, he attributes that almost to a kind of spiritual poison. But the ultimate source of that is substantially to do with industrialization. So Ruskin was a critic of industrialization. He was a critic of industrial working methods. He felt that they alienated the human being from their labor. And he also, of course, did a lot of work in the lakes and various places to try and stand up for the natural landscape, uh, to record the natural landscape. He urged people to look at the natural world. 
with the kind of steady gaze of a scientist. So he combines that environmental agenda with the scientific agenda. Ruskin's attitude to science becomes more complicated when science becomes materialistic, because Ruskin disliked materialism. Actually, his critique, his environmental critique, is often a critique of materialism, uh, the pursuit of wealth. As a, a figure for thinking about science, he's a kind of ambivalent and interesting figure, but for thinking about the environment, he's very compelling. And of course, he's particularly compelling at this moment when we're looking at massive anthropogenic effects on the environment, degradation of the environment, and when we urgently need to find not only practical scientific solutions, but fundamentally economic solutions. He was a great writer on economics, great critic of capitalist economics. Uh, and social solutions. So in that sense, Ruskin holds something for us now that perhaps 20 years ago we were less aware that he would hold for us. You've previously published on sort of how poets have responded to Darwin's ideas and mm -hmm. more recently on the Pre-Raphaelites and science. So what does Ruskin offer to your own scholarly work? Well, my work on Ruskin has tended to be centred on this museum. As well as taking a hand directly in the design of it, of course, he was very influential in getting the Pre-Raphaelites involved in the museum. And the museum saw uh, a lot of work by Pre-Raphaelite artists themselves, a lot of sculpture, and it also held up Pre-Raphaelitism as a standard by which the communication of science through art could be achieved because Pre-Raphaelites were, like Ruskin himself, very concerned with the direct, close focus on the, the physical object, the world out there. So my work with Ruskin has mainly thus far been about the museum and uh, his place in that, that wider project. Where it'll go from here, I'm not so sure. We'll see. I'm very interested in his attitude to science. I tend, unlike Ruskin, to be rather materialist myself, not in an economic sense, but in a scientific sense. And so I often find myself being a, a, more on Darwin's side of the argument than Ruskin's side of the argument. But I'm nevertheless interested in the criticisms that Ruskin and some of his allies, like the sculptor John Lucas Tupper, raised of Darwin's ideas and a materialist science. So that might be where it might go later. Perhaps the conference will change everything. Perhaps it will, know. yes, absolutely. And so as part of our conference, you're giving a, a tour of the museum. Yeah. So what can attendees expect? Well, what I want to do is to show people the art and the architecture of the building in a way that they may not have been fully aware of it. When you go to a museum, you tend to look at the things in the museum. You look at the cases, you look at the exhibits, you look at the special exhibitions and so forth. What I want people to do is to look up and to look up at the extraordinary Gothic arches that suspend and support the glass and iron roof, to look up at the carvings, to look up the statues and to see that this museum is an extraordinary collaborative work of art between scientists, artists, architects, under a kind of pre-Raphaelite brief but overall under the sort of presiding, or not presiding so much as guiding hand, let's say, of Ruskin himself. So that's what I want to show. So some of the, the finest of the artworks in the museum, and also to get people to just feel it, experience it in a new way. That's fabulous, particularly because from my own experience, my lasting legacy from studying Ruskin as an undergraduate was being taught to look up at the top of buildings. Excellent, excellent. Um, I, I remember Clive Wilmer telling me that because of Ruskin, he looked at the top of buildings. And because of Clive telling me that Ruskin told him, I now too look at the top of buildings. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. So that is what we will be doing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Two hundred years since his birth, Ruskin's work continues to inspire literary scholarship. 
Now we hear from an early career researcher about how Ruskin has influenced his current work. My name is Fraser Riddle. I'm departmental lecturer in Victorian literature at Trinity College at the University of Oxford. My research looks at the place of the body in aesthetic experience in 19th century culture. I'm currently working on a writer called Vernon Lee, who, like Ruskin, wrote extensively about Italian visual art and architecture, and was closely concerned in questions about the relationship between art and society. One of the things I find most striking in Lee's response to Ruskin is how she looks beyond Ruskin's moralism, his tendency to divide the world up into clear-cut categories of good and bad, to consider his more lasting relevance. Lee identifies in Ruskin three modes of transformation in how we live. Transformation in the way we pay attention to architecture, works of art and the living, breathing plants and animals that surround us. Transformation in how we understand the connection between art and society, between questions of beauty and the promise of social justice. And transformation in how we come to value our relationship with our environment, with the dignity and fragility of the natural world. Here's a short passage by Vernon Lee from her essay, Ruskin as a Reformer. Ruskin's deliberate intention was to place Turner above Claude, Gothic above Renaissance, the Middle Ages over modern times, hand labour above machinery, Protestantism above Catholicism, and biblical interpretation over scientific. But this programme matters little, and soon will matter not at all, these questions sinking more and more into squabbles about definitions and crusades about names, the embodiment thereof in his work being marked by injustice, violence, sophistry and self-contradiction. But meanwhile, the real man, the organised, intuitive, unhesitating creature of perception and aspiration, has subdued all this to his unconscious purposes and has left us the priceless teachings of his true preferences and antipathies. He has shown us art, history, nature, enlarged, transformed and glorified through the loving energy of his spirit. He has shown us a scheme of life in which greater justice for all would result merely from greater happiness of endowment of every one. He has given us an example of contemplative union with all living things, and in this contemplative ecstasy made all noble things alive. The most lark-like soul of our time, he sings at heaven's gates, and his song makes heaven's gates be everywhere above us. The most lark-like soul of our time, it's a, a wonderful phrase and a wonderful compliment to any lover of nature. My next guest is someone particularly sensitive to Ruskin as one of nature's notices. Fiona Stafford, a professor of English language and literature at the University of Oxford, will give a free public lecture at six o'clock at the Museum of Natural History entitled Ruskin's Trees. Ruskin's Trees 
you've previously published a book called The Long, Long Life of Trees. You're obviously quite an arboreal expert, <laughs> but what is so special about Ruskin's relationship with trees? Well, I think actually it is worth thinking about Ruskin in the context of the 19th century when arboreal knowledge was much more widespread and familiar to everybody. So we have to take that into account. So when Ruskin is being incredibly specific about the trees he remembers in his garden at Home Hill or trees he's seeing in Switzerland or whatever, we might think that that means he's a botanical expert. But actually, uh, this was just much more normal knowledge and readers would be able to kind of recognise the trees as well. Having said that, I think trees were very important to Ruskin personally and increasingly so throughout his life, which is one of the things I'm going to be talking about. And he was very interested in, in drawing trees. I mean, he's obviously is a great art critic. He's very interested in, in landscape drawing and painting, but very interested in, in, in the drawing aspect. It's not just a question of, of colour and form. He's very interested in drawing and drawing trees. And, you know, he has these very interesting ways of assessing the merits of great artists according to how well they can draw trees. So, so that is something that is not so common in the 19th century. So that will be a very distinctive aspect of Ruskin's relationship with trees. Now we live in a world where people like Richard Louvre are diagnosing great swathes of society with nature deficit disorder. What do you think Ruskin would have made of where we are today? Well, I think Ruskin would probably have been a bit dismayed by what he sees in the 21st century. Um, you know, he would have been aware of the massive species loss um, that has occurred even just since the, the turn of the century and he would have been very troubled by that. He would have also been troubled I think by the expansion of modern cities and the related retreat of the countryside really because certainly in his own later life he was very concerned uh, about the effects of the Industrial Revolution in Britain and he was uh, campaigning against the um, extension of railways through the Lake District. Um, he just thought it was so important to have spaces like the Lake District that were open to everybody and were there not not because they were big economic resources but because they were just very good for everybody. Um, and I, th I think that the kind of contemporary emphasis on economics over other kinds of value he would have been very, very troubled by. And I think the whole environmental crisis he would probably have seen in those terms. For those listeners who we've tempted into joining us on the 8th of February for your six o'clock lecture, what can they expect? I will be thinking about um, how trees feature in Ruskin's life, really, uh, from the parental garden uh, right through to his own estate at Brantwood. And then I'll be looking at how he talks about trees in, in many miscellaneous writings as well. So I'm interested in Ruskin actually as a planter and a person who's interested in physical trees, real trees, but also how he was interested in them in paintings, in literature, and as metaphors in his own writing. Um, so I'll be looking at all different aspects of Ruskin and trees, so far as I can fit that into an hour. <laughs> as a slightly whimsical way to end, the music I've been using throughout this episode is Qui la voce sua suave from Bellini's opera I Puritani, because in 1849, Ruskin wrote to his father about hearing Jenny Lind, known as the Swedish Nightingale, singing this aria, quote, very gloriously, prolonging the low notes exactly like soft wind among trees. The higher ones were a little too powerful for the room, but the lowest were heard dying away as if in extreme distance for at least half a minute and then melted into silence. 
it was in sound exactly what the last rose of Alpine sunset is in colour. Fiona, does it surprise you that Ruskin would describe music in relation to the natural world? No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I I think of Ruskin more in terms of art and writing than music, I must admit. But I think when he is talking about music, that seems something that would come naturally to him. And there's a kind of synesthesia there, isn't there? His ability to kind of see or listen to something and then be reminded of something visual, I think is very, very characteristic. And, and I think with that particular example, I think it's from an opera he may have actually heard and he may have had a recollection of the voices singing in the forest. So there might actually even be a kind of illusion there as well. And finally, we're going to have a listen to a couple of low notes to see if you yourself can hear the soft wind among trees or alpine sunset. And no is a fine and fair enough answer. <laughs> That's clip one. What do you reckon? Were they there for you? Well, it is a very beautiful piece, actually, isn't it? It's lovely. And, And the way it's just sort of gently fading away I think that's probably perhaps what it what he meant in terms of the colour and the sound it didn't sound that much like a nightingale to me I have to admit <laughs> but in terms of you know being deep in the forest or among the pine trees yeah you can see what he's getting at I think there's something transporting about it and that's probably what it was I mean if he was indoors listening to that um, it has the power perhaps to transport him into more natural surroundings Thank you for talking to me. A pleasure. It only remains for me to say thank you to all of my guests and to you for listening.